Washington, everybody knew that the Lincolns retreated to the soldiers' home in summer, a 200-acre campus. Then it disappeared. Where did it go, and who found it again over a century later? We'll find out when we talk to our guest, Matt Pinsker, on Civil War Talk Radio. For the people in our military, it's a time of sacrifice and duty. That's why all four military aid societies have joined together to form the Armed Forces Relief Trust to help military families cope with financial and medical emergencies at home. With so many serving overseas, the need is greater than ever. You can learn more and donate at www.afrtrust.org. A message from the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. It's a wake-up call. It's time to get serious about preparation and to understand that the threat is very real. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, recorded by Roger Kilfoyle, New York City firefighter. The topic, getting serious. It's irrelevant where you live or how many people live in your community or other variables like that. It's, it's America. America's the target, not just New York. We know there are some positive things that you can do to better prepare yourself and your family. It's simple steps to prepare yourself for events that may be out of your control. So, you know, having these little supplies together, you can prepare for problems that may happen. Learn to be prepared at www.ready.gov or call for a free brochure, 1-800-BE-READY. That's 1-800-237-3239. A public service message brought to you by the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Matthew Pinsker about his book, Lincoln's Sanctuary, Abraham Lincoln and the Soldier's Home. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about the origins of this place, the uh, uh, the Riggs Cottage that was originally designed, a building on the outskirts of Washington, or in the country outside of Washington, actually, uh, that became a, uh, a refuge for veterans, an asylum for uh, veterans. Uh, the public service announcement we just heard was appropriate, uh, talking about uh, veterans' relief, but... As, as Matt told us a moment ago, that was not uh, quite so politically uh, popular, at least universally popular as it is today, to say one supports the veterans. In the 19th century small government America, there were politicians who opposed uh, such measures. Matt, does that tie into the uh, suspicion of things like the Society of the Cincinnati, the idea that we should not have a military aristocracy? Uh, That's exactly right. And it was the same attitude and fear that uh, militarism wasn't um, conducive with republicanism. So protecting our, our retired soldiers or wounded veterans, uh, which, which today is, is uh, the idea of criticizing it would be political kryptonite. Nobody can say they don't support veterans, uh, but, but that was different then. So this, whole, the, the, this campus was built, this, this uh, uh, the soldier's home appears by the early 1850s. 
Uh, when does it? When does the president start to uh, show up? Well, the land is purchased in '52. The bill that became law authorized it in '51, and then they begin to make plans to organize the institution and uh, uh, develop a series of additional buildings around the cottage in the mid '50s. They're completed by '57, and in the next summer, I think the first presidential visit took place. James Buchanan. Uh, and his Secretary of War were both invited out uh, to spend the summer. Buchanan uh, took the invitation from the Board of Commissioners who ran the Soldiers' Home and uh, later reported to his niece, uh, Harriet Lane, that um, he slept better there than at the White House. He loved it, thought it was uh, a perfect retreat. So, uh, so it just sort of informally becomes a place where the President goes in the summer. Well, I don't think it's informal in the sense that it was accidental, although it was casual. Um, but it was, uh, I, I think, uh, a kind of intentional strategy uh, among the Board of Governors to try to secure the place. You know, not only was it difficult for the advocates for a military asylum or a soldier's home to get support on Capitol Hill, I mean, years of struggle before they got this bill approved, uh, but also, once it was approved, there was a backlash and a movement to try to uh, write it out of business. Uh, there was, in particular, a senator from New Hampshire, John Hale, a radical Republican, whose name is probably well known to many listeners, uh, who thought that it was a huge waste of money. And he was constantly leading investigations into misappropriations of funds. And there were several moments in these early years of the soldier's home where uh, its future seemed to be in jeopardy. So I actually think by reaching out to the President and the Secretary of War, they were trying to figure out a way to um, gain some supporters, uh, important ones, who would protect them. So when, uh, when Buchanan leaves office, does he give the keys to Abraham Lincoln? Uh, how, does, how do the Lincolns uh, first uh, start showing up at the, the soldiers' home? Well, it's kind of remarkable. It may be the only good thing that James Buchanan did for Abraham Lincoln, uh, they, of course, met on Inauguration Day, March 4th, and he must have said something to the president, the new president, that is, because uh, two days later, Abraham Lincoln rode out to the soldiers' home, and then shortly thereafter, uh, Mary Lincoln did as well. So both of them went out in that first week of the administration to see the place, and uh, undoubtedly it must have been because Buchanan recommended it as a retreat for their summer uh, location. And it's not like they didn't have anything else to do uh, with secession crashing down around them. So it must have really made an impression to, to take time to go out and see it the first week. No doubt. I mean, the re press reported in the spring that they were planning to repeat the, the same tradition that Buchanan had started and occupy a cottage on the grounds during the summer. Uh, they did not do that in the summer of 61, and that was largely because uh, uh, the first battle of Bull Run uh, interrupted the plans. Uh, Lincoln decided that he had to remain in the White House and appear to be completely on top of things in that critical first summer of the war. So Mary Lincoln went to New Jersey for parts of the summer and left him there. So, so he was there through the, the first summer, not using the soldiers' home. Um, and I imagine would have remained in the White House, even though he called it an iron cage and complained about it, because he was um, you know, a hard worker and uh, focused, obviously, on the needs of the crisis. But then in February of 62, uh, the Lincoln's middle son, Willie, died. And in the grief after the death of Willie, uh, Mary Lincoln decided that the family needed to find some kind of 
sanctuary, and that the White House was a place of business not appropriate to a family in mourning. And I think that's what convinced the president to agree to make the transition. And so in June of 62, a few months after Willie's death, the family relocated for the summer out into the soldier's home on the grounds of the place in one of the cottages. And uh, Lincoln spent the rest of the summer and through most of the fall commuting back and forth each day between the soldier's home and the White House. Well, how, how did that work? How long a commute was it? Did he go horseback, carriage? How, how, what was the commute like? Well, it varied. You know, uh, it's about three and a half miles. It might have taken him anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes, um, depending on how often he stopped or if there was any traffic. Uh, but um, he uh, rode on both horseback and by carriage, sometimes alone, sometimes with his wife and son, later in the war with a military escort, uh, but at first without any escort at all. Well, man, that's one of those things where it really drives home the different world in which we live today, the idea of the president uh, driving himself, as it were, uh, anywhere uh, without an escort of Secret Service or military is unthinkable now. But he just, uh, Abraham just, just got on his horse and rode out of town. And, and did people recognize him? I mean, did, today, if the president did that, he'd be, he'd be surrounded by people trying to shake his hand or ask him for a favor. Uh, Lincoln was certainly recognized, uh, and I guess at times he was harassed. But, you know, it, it was unthinkable, uh, the differences between their world and ours, in a couple of different ways. Not only was the president freer to move about, but people were freer to bother him. So the White House was kind of an open place, and people would arrive there and uh, wait in line and then see the president. And, in fact, they did the same thing at the soldier's home. They would arrive uninvited and uh, try to see the president, and they often would. So it's just a, a different culture, a different attitude, different expectations. There's a, a famous account of Walt Whitman uh, talking about uh, how he would see the president every day on his way to work, and they would nod at each other. Um, uh, one of our colleagues has, has spun this into an entire book of the parallel lives of Lincoln and Whitman in Washington, which like parallel lines, do not intersect. Uh, other than the nodding acquaintance, they don't seem to have intersected much. But uh, uh, was that Lincoln commuting to the soldier's home when he saw Whitman? Right. That's, uh, it is still an extraordinary portrait. You have you know, the nation's greatest president probably crossing paths every day in the summer of 1863 with the nation's greatest poet. Walt Whitman at the time is a volunteer nurse, and he's got a, a small job in the Treasury Department. He's living in Washington and he was keeping a journal. And in the summer of 63, he noted, I think it was uh, August 12th, that he saw the president every day. And he described what it was like and how they exchanged bows and nods. Uh, they had become so familiar. Although he said that Lincoln was rusty and dusty and that uh, his cortege was unornamental uh, and uh, that uh, there still was something in his face, uh, latent sadness, that none of the portrait painters had yet captured. Uh, it was kind of fleeting entry, but then he turned it into a newspaper article, which was published in the New York Times, and then later he reprinted it in his uh, uh, various uh, notes on the war and in later editions of his writings, and it became a kind of uh, symbol of um, his intersection with Lincoln. 
So uh, Whitman and all the readers and everybody in Washington knew that this was how Lincoln spent his days in the summer. Um, there's a lot more to say about Lincoln and, and what he did there and, and events there, and I want to come back to that, but I want to jump ahead because I, I said I'd do so in the introduction. Um, what happened after the Lincolns left the uh, after Lincoln's assassination? Uh, uh, did did Andrew Johnson use the Summer White House? Use the, the Lincoln Cottage of the Summer White House? Andrew Johnson declined to use the Summer White House, the Soldiers' Home, and so did uh, Ulysses Grant and his family. The Grants actually preferred New Jersey, uh, but uh, Rutherford B. Hayes did. Uh, and he spent some time out in the soldier's home and, and noted his experiences with the inmates there. They sometimes called them inmates or residents, the, the retired veterans. Uh, in his journal, he kept a, a lengthy diary. Uh, and then um, Chester Arthur as well spent some time out at the White House. Um, James Garfield was planning to, uh, and then he was shot. Uh, but uh, they were the last presidents that we know for sure, uh, lived in residence at the cottage on the grounds of the soldier's home. But you can see why uh, that tradition got broken. In the years after the Civil War, the population of the place exploded, you know, from a few hundred during Lincoln's era to over a thousand by the end of the 19th century because they were all the veterans of the Civil War who were coming there. And there was no room for a presidential uh, visit. And then... Subsequent presidents had their own places to go in the summer. I think Theodore Roosevelt at Oyster Bay or... Uh... Right. You know there are some famous traditions of presidents uh, either traveling back to their own family estates or uh, using the presidential yacht uh, or eventually then with Dwight David Eisenhower establishing Camp David and living in rural Maryland uh, whenever they needed a retreat. Which now subsequent presidents continue to use uh, along with you know, Hyannis or Kenny Bunkport or any other place they might choose to go uh, uh, in the in the summer. So uh, the when presidents stopped going to the the soldiers' home, it the, the soldiers still live there. As you say, the Civil War veterans and their large numbers are there. Uh, what happened to the the cottage itself where Lincoln had stayed? Well, in the uh, 1880s, they renamed the cottage the Anderson Cottage, and actually. In the story of how the place came about, I skipped over kind of lightly his contribution, but Robert Anderson, the colonel of Fort Sumter fame, was actually one of those military figures along with Winfield Scott who had lobbied strenuously for the creation of the soldiers' home. And so um, in the 1880s, they renamed the former Riggs Cottage, the place where Lincoln had stayed, the Anderson Cottage. And then it became, um, you know, a facility in the place. It was... um, uh, at one point, uh, a place where the band lived, and then it housed visitors. Later, it would house some female uh, residents. It became a kind of recreational facility. And then, uh, finally, at the end of the 20th century, it was designated the National Monument. It became uh, the object of a restoration effort by the National Trust. And so now it's this you know, preserved place. Uh, but around it, it's still a functioning retirement community. There are still veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces who are there and living on the grounds. And, and very nice grounds. They have a golf course, uh, among other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, it, it really is. But the, that, that last chapter there, from the time it was, uh, as you say, a building for, uh, for various people to stay in or for recreational purposes or administrative purposes, um, 
people seem to have largely forgotten that Abraham Lincoln once stayed there. You can you know, travel anywhere up and down the East Coast and find old colonial towns with a sign saying George Washington slept here. Uh, we know Abraham Lincoln slept there, and yet there were no signs for, for decades. Uh, well, we have to be clear. They, uh, they did have a sign on okay. the cottage, and there was uh, plenty of local um, memory. You know, everybody who lived in the soldier's home or uh, the you know military home, as it came to be called, they you know they knew of the Lincoln connection and celebrated it, and there were people who remembered it. And you know one of the one of the most poignant stories I discovered in my research is a story from the 1930s about uh, how a, uh, a a black woman in her 90s uh, walked from her house in the district to the soldier's home because she remembered as a little girl that she had heard that the um, president had written the Emancipation Proclamation at the cottage. And before she died, she wanted to see the place where the Emancipation Proclamation had been written. And I know about this because, you know, the Washington Post came out and did a little story about her. Anna Harrison Chase was her name, and uh, took her picture. So there were people who remembered, uh, and there were books that discussed it. Uh, but you're right about one thing. I mean, the general point is true. Over time, the story faded, and people lost interest, and it didn't have a place. And by the time you and I were graduate students in the 1980s, or when I was an undergraduate and you were a graduate student, uh, you you could you know you you could read dozens and dozens of Lincoln books and not come across any reference at all to the soldier's home. The uh, the building itself. Uh, eventually, as you point out, was identified. There were various people who have uh, claims on, on being the ones who rediscovered it. I know uh, there was a meeting of some of the founders of the Lincoln Forum. People like Frank Williams and Harold Holzer were involved. Uh, David Long was at one of these meetings. Uh, but you know, credit never goes to the actual people who, who do things in cases like this. Uh, uh, but it does eventually spread around and... and uh, Whoever rediscovered it, it, it became a national, uh, it regained national prominence in the 90s. And uh, well, you're, uh, you're right about this. And there's a hero, there's a, a group of unsung heroes. You know, there were some residents there, um, a handful of them who kept alive the stories, who would be sort of pulled out uh, to give the Lincoln tour to distinguished visitors or guests who wanted to know about it. Uh, there was a number of these guys, but one of them was named Ray Colbert. Uh, and then there were staffers, you know, who worked for the Defense Department, who worked out there, who kept the stories alive and tried to promote the Lincoln Connection, a woman named Carrie Childress for years. And then the Lincoln Forum did an awful lot of work. You know, David Long wasn't just at one of these meetings. He was one of the primary movers of this effort. Um, and there were others. Um, but ultimately, I think, you know, the credit really does belong to the National Trust, for, uh, and, and in particular its president, Dick Moe for spearheading the political and financial effort required to save the place. And uh, it's, it's remarkable what they've accomplished in about eight years. And, and today visitors can, can now go to see uh, the home as a public facility. Uh, Matt, we're going to take one more short break. We'll come back in just a minute, talk more about some of the uh, remarkable stories and legends of things that happened at the soldier's home. And we'll do that in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 